I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today. That despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith. In this episode, we are going to delve into the topic of shame. Unlike last week's episode about guilt, this is an area that I have faced too many times in my life. And for a long time, I battled with it and had no idea what it was. The first time I realized anything was when I was at a worship event and I heard the Holy Spirit say, you have a problem with shame. That was probably about seven years ago now. And ever since then, I have been slowly coming to understand what that means, how it shaped my life and how I can be free of it. Shame is a much more common word these days, probably largely on account of people like Brene Brown. In her famous TED Talk, she really brought the theme of shame from its position of secrecy to a major discussion point in society. And in the Christian world, preachers like Christine Kane and Craig Rochelle have spoken or written about it as well. So my intention is not to compete with what is already out there, because I'm sure I wouldn't have that much more to add but I do intend to go deeper, if that's at all possible. So what exactly is shame? Well, this is Brene Brown's definition of shame. Intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And with my zero years as a researcher and slightly Christian slant, I present to you my definition The associated pain and unpleasant feelings of unworthiness triggered by self-condemnation. Yes, I believe that shame is derived from a harsh self-judgment. Sometimes that self-judgment is so ingrained that it's not just periodic, it's constant to the point that it becomes our normal posture, the very lens through which we see and interpret all things in life and faith. In that way, it is grossly debilitating and not just unpleasant. Shame is very different from guilt. Brene Brown, again, does a much better job than I could do when she explains that guilt is an emotion that is triggered by something we have done. But shame says, I am a mistake rather than I made a mistake. It internalizes the statement. I also like how Craig Grishel distinguishes the difference between shame and guilt. When he says that guilt is action-based, while shame is identity-based. And whilst they are both different, I do think that they have a relationship, that guilt often and almost immediately for some translates into shame. For instance, we might tell ourselves not to eat the cookie, and then we inevitably do, right? We feel guilty for eating the cookie, and afterwards when we see the cookie crumbs on our shirt and the chocolate on our face, we say, I'm so fat, or I'm so bad and thus enters shame, because the conclusion we came to was an internalized negative statement about who we are. We don't even think about how suddenly that cookie became really powerful if it was able to draw us to such conclusions about ourselves and who we are. And we assume the lesson is don't eat the cookie. But should that really be our takeaway? It's so easy to veer into shame too, because it predominantly hinges on two very common concerns we have. The first one is, am I good enough? And the second one is, who do you think you are? As in, what are you trying to prove? 
it shouldn't surprise us to know that both of these questions plagued our biblical ancestors as much as they do us today. Even without the social media and the complexity of pressures we face daily, these two questions aren't new, as I'm going to show you. There are two really prominent stories that demonstrate the occurrence of this question or this concern about being good enough, this am I good enough, this question, you know. The first is in the story of Gideon in Judges 6. The introduction to this story describes the terrible, heinous acts perpetrated against the Israelite people at the hands of the Midianites. The Israelite people had been unfaithful to God, and so he gives them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years, and they were really bad. The Israelites would camp out in the caves, and when the Midianites came upon their land, would leave the land devastated. There would be no animals left behind. And so the people of God cry out again, and God speaks through a prophet, But sort of nothing really happens, you know, at least it doesn't seem like there is any immediate resolution coming. But then in secret, or when I say secret, I don't mean secretively, but, you know, alone, uh, God approaches Gideon. And now Gideon is threshing wheat in the wine press. You know, that's not really the place you would thresh wheat. Yeah, I've heard preachers say that he was doing so to hide from the Midianites. And I got to say, I don't blame him because, you know, especially if they were known to steal and to devastate so much, right? But then in verse 12, the angel of the Lord comes and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now imagine the juxtaposition. He's hiding and God's calling him a mighty man of valor. Anyway, Gideon kind of goes, well, if the Lord was with us, we wouldn't be in this situation. And God basically says that he's going to save Israel through him. So here is the moment we hear that I'm not good enough, right? So this is Gideon replying in verse 15. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. What is Gideon really saying? He's saying, I'm not good enough. Not only am I in the weakest clan, but I am also the lowest in my family. In other words, I am the weakest of the weak. His focus is completely on himself, his own inadequacies, all of which he believes disqualifies him. The story goes on and God demonstrates signs and wonders and sure enough, Gideon becomes a great man. He is a conduit for God's rescue of his people because he obeys. Gideon is a good story. Then there is the story of King Saul, which doesn't quite have the same lovely ending. The story of Saul begins in 1 Samuel 9 with Saul visiting the land where the prophet Samuel lives. Samuel gets a download from God and as Saul is approaching him, telling him that Saul is the man that will rule the people of Israel. In verse 20, Samuel is communicating what God has told him to Saul. So he's telling him, but Saul replies, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel and is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such things to me? This is the first sign we see of Saul's feelings of inadequacy. Just as Gideon, he doesn't believe he is good enough because of his family heritage. Next, in 1 Samuel 10, Saul has returned to his uncle. His uncle is like, where have you been? 
And he says when he couldn't find the sheep, he went to the prophet Samuel. I'm sort of summarizing this to make it a little bit quicker for you, right? His uncle says, tell me what the prophet said to you. And this is what scripture tells us is Saul's reply in verse 16. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Why did he not tell him? The uncle was going to find out. I mean, how long could you keep that a secret? You know, like they're basically inaugurating you or, or anointing you or whatever. You know, the uncle's going to be like, what? Like, why didn't you tell me, you know? Why was he not even excited about this too? This was an answer to prayer for the Israelite people. It wasn't just about him. Okay, there is one more circumstance that occurs with Saul that tells us a lot about his state of mind. Samuel is about to announce to the Israelite nation, the leader, Saul, that God has chosen for his people. He asks the tribes to present themselves before God and finally arrives Saul's tribe, right? So let's see what happens in verse 21 to 22. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken, but when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. He hid. This is like the day of his inauguration. It's his anointing day. Imagine if a president didn't turn up for his own inauguration, you know, and God doesn't sugarcoat it either. You know, he probably could have said, oh, you know, well, he can't because he can't lie. But, you know, he, he, he's not lost. He's, he didn't need to go to the bathroom. He was hiding in the supplies of all places. No king that knew he was a king that was meant to be in that position would ever even touch foot in the supplies closet. Saul didn't believe he was good enough to be king and it caused him to be afraid and I think it caused him to be ashamed. Although we sort of can't be 100% certain, but there's some signs there, right? And that's not the end of it either with Saul. You know, the story goes on. He is oppressed by a spirit. And that's actually when he first meets David because David is a musician and plays his instrument so that Saul, you know, is, is free from this spirit. He doesn't face Goliath. He commences a task that can only be done by a priest, which is actually what causes him to lose his anointing. And after that, it gets even worse. Like he attempts to kill David several times. He hurls a spear at his own son for challenging him. He charges people for conspiring against him because they protect David. He commits a mass murder, 85 priests to be exact. And he bans all mediums from Israel, but then goes and consults a medium. His journey with not feeling good enough never really changed. He didn't grow and he didn't get better. The stakes just got higher and he had more power with which to control the threats to his pride and his shame. The second question, which I mentioned earlier, which is the who do you think you are, requires a little bit more explanation. Who do you think you are is triggered by this voice in our heads that believes we are trying to be more than we have the right to be. It's probably not just our voice, really. It's probably the enemy's too, if we're being honest. So to begin with, we have this self-perception, this image of what we deserve or even who we deserve to be. 
And when we begin to step beyond that self-perception, it's like an internal betrayal to our negative self-worth. And therefore, the negative self-worth, who is this really harsh critic, tries to drag us back into alignment using this question intended to make you feel ashamed again. Who do you think you are is another way of saying, how dare you be something you're not? You don't have the right to do that. In psychology, they call this the imposter syndrome, which is the sense that you are a phony and fake and that eventually people are going to discover that too. Because that inner self-critic can only conclude that you must be faking it since it is unable to comprehend that you may actually be a remarkable human. In this mindset, it's the people who are worthy who get the choice circumstances in life. So when you get a choice circumstance, you figure it's only a matter of time before you get discovered as a fraud. Now, as always, we project this question onto others too. We will look at others and say, they aren't good enough. Who do they think they are? As though there is something that qualifies us all when it comes to God. So let's consider the story of David, the shepherd boy, found in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath, the Philistine warrior, is facing the Israelite army. David's brothers are out in the battlefields with Saul's army and and Jesse, David's father, asked David to go and deliver a basket of bread and cheese. And while David is talking to his brothers, Goliath comes out yelling a threat and a challenge that he's been yelling for 40 days without defeat. And David's response is, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In other words, who does this guy think he is? Does he know who we are? Does he know who our God is? David seems legitimately confused about how Goliath could dare to come against the Israelite army. Sadly, David's brother mistakenly identifies David's confidence as pride and says, Why are you here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He almost flips it back onto David. What right do you have to be here? You're supposed to be looking after the sheep. The point is, according to David's brother, he wasn't supposed to be there. He didn't have the right to be. He accuses David of neglecting his duties to come to a place he isn't supposed to be to watch the battle. Now, it may not have been David's right in the eyes of man to have been there, but in the eyes of God, it was his destiny. Before David had a real chance to reconsider, he was being summoned by the king with the intention of throwing him to the giant. He was about 15 to 19 years old. That's what theologians believe. That's really young. I find it so amazing that the Israelite army feigned in comparison to the courage of a young boy. Eliab, David's brother, and the questions and statements that he made were meant to have David cowering back home and be back in his rightful place with the sheep away from the men. Now, how often have you heard the same question, whether it was in your head or by someone else? Get back in your box. You don't belong here. How dare you? That's the voice of shame. Don't be fooled. This is the very voice of the enemy. Because the truth is you have every right to walk out confidently the plan God has for your life. You have the authority in Christ to trample on scorpions, remember? 
The fact is the enemy uses this one because he knows that he is the one who has no rights and authority and that dark forces must submit to God's authority, which he delegates to us. Of course, the enemy wants to confuse you about that. The second example is by none other than our precious Savior, Jesus. In Matthew 13, Jesus has been teaching a number of different parables. And finally, he arrives in his hometown and begins to teach in the temple. But the people there say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? Now, we could assume that their question and response were really just disbelief, right? Except that in verse 57, it says they took offense to him. Now, why would you take offense unless there was something about the situation that was offensive? I mean, he was teaching and doing miracles. He's helping people. Like, why is that offensive? The only reason that could have been offensive was to consider that he was like brought up in common familiar circumstances like your own and that if he dared to step out and do something different, if he dared to be more than what you thought he deserved, that's the only reason you would be offended. In John 1 verse 46, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, once said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Sadly, it seems that the Nazarene community thought the same as everyone else outside of it, that nothing good could come from it. That may have become their identity and that might have offended them to consider that one of their own became the Messiah. Okay, so what kind of things would you do or feel if you were ashamed? For some, you don't need me to describe this. You're all too aware of shame and how it impacts your life. But I know that this isn't the case for everyone. So here's just some of the things you will do or feel when you have shame. The first one is fear of intimacy. The feeling of being exposed is a nightmare for someone who struggles with shame. And for that reason, people who struggle with shame will find it really hard to be completely themselves or be completely honest with other people. They may hide behind certain behaviors as a protection mechanism, joking, sarcasm, and, you know, really so many other things. But ultimately, it's to avoid that feeling of being exposed. Number two, self-harm. This is not always the case, but a person with shame might present with not only the more well-known versions of self-harm, like cutting or self-medicating with drugs or alcohol, but also things like overeating, overspending, and activities that are in essence a form of self-sabotage. Number three, feelings of deficiency and low self-worth. This is probably one of the central features of shame. It's about how you feel. When you have shame, you feel like there is something fundamentally wrong with you. You lack somehow. Sometimes you can't even pinpoint exactly what it is you lack, but you know that you are just not good enough. You are not as important as everybody else. And you definitely don't feel like an equal because you're different and not the good kind of different. 
Shame is very linked to feelings of unworthiness, which just means that you feel undeserving of anything good and you don't feel like you have any value. The worst feeling associated with shame is the feeling of dirtiness, self-disgust or like self-loathing. You look at yourself and you feel gross about who you are. It's a really awful feeling and it's really hard to change. Number four, harsh judgment of yourself. People with shame are often incredibly harsh judges of themselves because they view everything in life through this lens of their own low self-worth. Even if they see a trait, they have in someone else and they like it, they don't necessarily think it's a good thing in themselves. So like, you know, they might look at someone and go, oh, wow, I love how they have like really nice ears. I don't know, man, that was so random. Okay, ears, we're going with ears, people. Um, they'll, they'll go, oh, wow, their ears are really nice and they're just like mine. Oh, hang on. Oh, but it's on me. So, oh, it's not really that nice on me though. Theirs is different. You know, um, actually I have had this happen to me to do with curly hair. So, um, you know, other people with curly hair will look at my hair and go, oh yeah, but you've got nice curls. Psh, curls are curls. Like it's just that they can't like it if it's on them because they feel ashamed of it because they feel ashamed in general. Right. Okay. I think I did a much better explanation just then with the curly hair thing than I did with the ears. So we're just going to pretend that the whole ears thing didn't happen. They are quick to blame and assume that anything bad must relate to them somehow, you know? They may even say that they hate themselves, although this is not the case for everyone. This is where I think the self-condemnation bit really comes in. You know, self-condemnation is when we debase or degrade ourselves. We lower our value because of the harsh judgments we have pronounced upon ourselves, right? Okay, so number five, and this is the last one, the urge to hide. This is usually associated with the feelings of dirtiness and disgust. It it can also relate to that feeling of being exposed as well. It can also be related to intense feelings of embarrassment and humiliation, even if there is no external source for the humiliation. Whatever the cause, it is one of the most common traits of shame. Even in the story of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2 verse 25, the writer makes this really odd statement that almost seems out of place. He says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then in Genesis 3 verse 7, immediately after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, they become suddenly aware of their nakedness and make coverings for themselves. And then in verse 8, when they hear God walking through the garden, their first instinct is to hide. They were suddenly aware of how exposed they were and, and probably felt vulnerable. Now, when we experience shame, often our first instinct is to hide. A person may not, you know, turn up to something, you know, they might not turn up to church for a while or, or they just disappear and nobody can make contact with them. You know, as a teenager, I had really intense body image problems and I felt very ashamed of my body and I would deliberately wear heavy jumpers to hide myself. Like nobody knew that. Even when it was sweltering heat, people would say to me constantly, aren't you hot, Mel? And I'd just say, no, I don't really feel the heat that much. It was a total lie. I was absolutely hot. I was so hot. I'd just rather not have anyone see what was under the thick jumper, convinced that they would be just as disgusted as I was. 
Now, thank God I'm not like that anymore because, you know, I've been living in Brisbane for the last 14 years and the heat is just ridiculous out here. So, you know, like I'm glad that God has healed that just even for me physically and my comfort levels. Hiding is a really common response to shame. So shame actually does appear in scripture a fair bit. I mean, obviously I've just shared this point around Adam and Eve, like, you know, the scripture actually uses the word shame. It's not like we've just, you know, brought that up out of nowhere and we're making assumptions. But yeah, you know, shame actually comes up in scripture a little bit in Job 10 verse 15, which says, if I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. Job says, I cannot lift my head. So this is such an interesting point because if you did a quick Google search, you would find that maintaining eye contact and looking down and not being able to look someone in the eye is a sign of shame. It's like, you know, when your dog does something naughty and it like bows its head, like sort of unwilling to make eye contact with you, unless you're a husky, they just like howl at you. Side side note, I am crazy about huskies. If you ever find any videos on Instagram of huskies, like you need to send it to me because I just think huskies are like hilarious. Anyway, um, I've, I've again digressed as I usually do. The point is, is that needing to look down all the time is associated with shame. This is a really fascinating concept because in other parts of scripture, Writers will refer to God lifting their heads or even look up as God says to Abraham. Yes, it is symbolic of turning our gaze toward God, but it could also be symbolic of God's desire to take away our shame. Something similar is mentioned in Psalm 34 verse 5. It says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Again, there is this idea that there is a relationship between what is going on in our face and our head and shame. Moving along, in Psalm 25 verse 3, David says, No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. And now the one that really deserves mention is the passage in Luke 11 verses 5 to 8. It says this, Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Shameless audacity. Now, here's what is fascinating about this precise statement. This is the first instance where the word shameless is not being used in a negative sense. And it's Jesus who says it. Using a word, I think it's anadaya. Okay, don't you know, don't go check if I said that right. Anyway, this word, anadea, that never occurs again in the New Testament. That's the one and only time that that word ever gets used. He uses the word to describe how we are to approach God with shameless audacity. In other words, be absolutely ridiculous in how frequently you pray and what you ask him for. 
What I find most fascinating about this entry is that it's almost like God is completely flipping the concept of shamelessness. Instead of the word shameless being about dirtiness and unclean behavior like it was in the Old Testament, it's about being so bold and brazen when we pray that there just can be no consideration of whether you have the right or the permission to ask it. He's saying, just ask. It sort of puts the passage in Hebrews 4.16 into perspective, which says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace. We can be so bold to expect grace every time, no matter what we have done, no matter how dirty and shameful we feel. With confidence is how we are to approach grace. With no doubt in our mind that what we will receive is love, grace and mercy. Did you ever have a distant parent? Well, you would know that when they were distant, it meant that you were just not safe in terms of how you could approach them. I mean, in in some ways, you just wouldn't approach them at all because you knew what you were going to get. You were going to get distance. That is not what this is talking about here in this passage. God is telling us we can approach him with the expectation that what we will receive is not distance, is not judgment, is not shame or condemnation. We will receive grace and mercy and love. So besides the fact that shame is so universally experienced, it is, it is universally experienced and I would not believe a single person who told me that they've never felt shame. The reason we need to talk about this is because of an apparent misunderstanding that has created barriers in our relationship with God. We get told in the Christian world that we aren't good enough for God, that we are unworthy And yes, there is much to say that this is true. When Isaiah sees God in chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Isaiah becomes instantly aware of how unworthy he is to stand in the presence of God. But here's the thing. Yes, in our sinful state, without the righteousness of Jesus, we are not worthy of his forgiveness or his pardon. But that has never meant that we were unworthy of his love. His love is not like that. It never has been. He doesn't withdraw it because we did something bad. That would make his love conditional and imperfect like our love. But scripture tells us he is is love. He emanates perfect, self-sacrificial love because it's who he is. Our worthiness of his love has never been the question. He doesn't love us because, well, you know, who else is going to love us if he doesn't love us? It's not out of pity. It's not out of duty. It's not because he should. It's because he is love and he can do nothing else but love his creation. If this is hard to listen to, you might need to re-listen to this paragraph a few times over. Let it get into your heart. Confuse the pre-existing shame that has made you believe that you are not worthy of connection and that you are not lovable. 
God adores you. He is even proud of you. Some of you find this really hard to comprehend. You have heard how much God hates sin and how we are sinners. And then you find it hard to reconcile the idea that God could be proud of us because they're like opposite ideas. But I tell you how I know that he is proud of us. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 6 to 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God is not hiding us. God is not hiding you. He raised us up with Christ and seated us in heavenly places. He positions us before at least the heavens, before the angels, because we testify, we testify of the incomparable riches of his grace. With all that we are, our past, our misinterpretations of scripture, our ability to get life so wrong, he isn't embarrassed by any of it. In fact, he kind of shows us off as an example of what grace can do. Like in the book of Job, when Satan comes to God, he says, look at my servant Job. He is so good. That's what he does for us. Even though you might feel ashamed, he is not ashamed of you. So in closing, here is a thought. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 to 4, Paul makes a groundbreaking statement. It is so countercultural for our time that I would say that it is earth shattering. The Corinthian church was picking favorites and it was causing division. Some preferred Paul and some preferred Apollos. Paul was concerned about the division that had arisen as a result of this sighting, and so he is addressing the issue. But slipped in amidst the correction is this striking statement. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. He says this, I do not even judge myself. (laughs) What? I mean... Just think about that for a second. If you're anything like me, I have constantly judged myself all my life. And in Christian community, I've often been encouraged to judge myself as well, which I'm sure is the same for you. But Paul just slips in this staggering truth that even our judgment against ourselves doesn't really hold any weight. It is the Lord's judgment that counts. So in the big scheme of things, at the end of our life, will anything that I believed about myself count? At the end of your life, will anything that we believed about ourselves, you know, too fat, too thin, too pretty? Well, actually, who has ever said too pretty? Okay, what I meant to say is not pretty enough, not smart enough, too smart, too short, too tall, not a good listener, not an initiative taker, not a good leader. You know what? I could actually be here all day if I kept going with listing all the judgments that we make of ourselves. But will any of the multitude of judgments, the vast array of statements we make about how we lack, make any difference in the end? Will it change the declaration that Jesus makes over us? 
No. From the day you were born again till the day of your death, the same declaration has been made and will be made. You are righteous. It's not because of you or anything you have done, but the righteousness found in Jesus. But you know what? That doesn't take anything away from the fact that the statement made in response to what God sees when he looks at you is righteous. He says you are clothed in white. That declaration doesn't change. You are righteous before God. Even if you become like super spiritually mature or the leader of some massive church or denomination, you are and will forevermore be as righteous as the day you committed your worst sin. Even if Billy Graham or Martin Luther stood you know, beside you, God would declare the exact same thing over you as he would them. Righteous. God sees no distinction between the most holy looking person and the rest of us that are just doing the best that we can. We are all righteous. None is more righteous. None is less. Yes, you still sin, but his grace is sufficient for you and you can boldly approach him expecting that you will get grace and mercy. If it ultimately makes no difference, if what I think about myself makes no difference at all, What does it mean for shame? You are free to let the walls of shame down because you are no longer what you say. You're wasting your breath and energy assessing and critiquing yourself because it's not going to make any ultimate difference to what happens to you. There is only one difference judging yourself makes. It makes a difference in how you live today and the quality of that life. But otherwise, you can let it all go. It is not at all what God says about you. He is not saying you are not good enough to be loved by me. He is not saying who do you think you are. He is saying you are a royal priesthood. So I want to pray for you today. This is the first time I'm actually praying on the podcast, but I just think that this is the best thing that I can do for you in conclusion to this message that I hope has really spoken to you. So if you want to be changed, if you want God to take this shame away and you don't want to feel shame again, I I just ask you to agree with what I am praying over you right now. Dear Jesus, we love you so much. We are so grateful for what you did when you died on the cross and you rose again. Thank you that there are different declarations that have been spoken over our lives and that it washes away the past. It washes away everything that has been spoken over our lives by people that didn't understand how amazing and special we are because of you, because of what you have put on us, your righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would embrace, we would embrace the royalty, the the identity that you have given us now. We thank you that we are now your child, God. We are children of the most high God. There is honor on us. There is goodness on us. I pray that we would receive the truth of who you say we are. Lord, I pray for every person who has just felt like they were never good enough I pray, Lord God, that you would infuse your love into their heart, into their being. May they know 
that you are not hiding them that you are not even hiding yourself from them, that you come close, you are not afraid of what mess you see in us. Heal us, God. I pray for every person who has had that statement in their mind frequently come up. Who do you think you are? I pray that they would know that they are chosen by God, that they have the authority of Christ, that they are healed, they are forgiven, they are righteous. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsaywood.com.